0: We're coming to Ephesians chapter 6 and the last section, if you will, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as we do, perhaps it's worth just uh, taking a second to review where we've come over the last six months. We've seen Paul describe here in Ephesians God's plan from all eternity to save His people. We've seen God's mercy who saved His people by grace alone through faith in Christ. We've seen the work of God to create one new people from Jew and Gentile, uniting them together by Christ and His Spirit, reconciling them to God and to each other through the cross. We've seen Paul then appeal to all those who have put their faith in Christ to walk worthy of the calling that they've received. And they're to walk worthy of their calling first by walking in unity with one another, ministering to one another so that the whole church grows and matures in Christ. And they're to walk worthy of their calling by walking in holiness as imitators of God, full of the Holy Spirit doing His will. We saw that this Spirit-filled obedience would transform our lives, our marriages, our families, our work. But now we come to the final section of this letter. And as Paul ends, he has one last concluding charge for the Ephesian believers as they live as God's people in the days to come. And so this morning, we want to look at this last section and we'll look just at the first few verses of it. Verses 10-13 through 13 in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, follow along as we read together from God's Word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and having done all, to stand firm. God, this is Your Word that You've given to us, and we thank You for it. We thank You that You gave it through the hands of Your apostles and prophets and other human authors, but it is Your Word. And so we pray that Your Spirit would continue to use it to strengthen us and call us to Christ this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you're going to act properly... In any situation, it's important that you read the situation correctly. If you misread your situation, you're liable to do or say things that could get you into some hot water. I found that out myself recently. It was one of those weeks this past spring when the rain was coming down regularly, the grass was growing quickly, and it's difficult to stay on top of mowing your lawn. And uh, so I was mowing, and I was a bit distracted and ended up spraying wet grass on my neighbor's new mulch right near our yard line. And uh, understandably, my neighbor was not overly happy, but unfortunately, when he came to talk to me about it, I misread the situation. And I thought that his tone was quite lighthearted, and so I responded with a chuckle and quite a lighthearted comment in return, only to realize he was actually quite frustrated with me and then thought I'd laughed him off. Unfortunately, he's a gracious man and he quickly accepted my apology, but I badly misread the situation and then didn't act appropriately as a result. Now, when Paul comes to the end of Ephesians 6 here, he's concerned that God's people might not just misread a particular situation, but might fail to understand the reality that we're living in. And in this case, failing to understand the reality that we're living in will leave us as sitting ducks with our souls at stake. Because as Paul states, his main point in our text this morning is that we are active combatants in a spiritual war that will not cease until Christ returns. My main goal this week is for us to understand this war, and then next week we'll look more at how to fight in this war. But for this morning, let's try to understand this war and our enemy And our hope in the war that is going on. We'll start with the war. Paul declares in verse twelve. You see it there. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul, I think, has chosen this word carefully. He uses the word wrestle. It's a word for for hand to hand combat. He doesn't just use the word for war or battle as if we could kind of stand far back and launch some mortars over at this war. This spiritual war is one that we engage in personally, like a wrestling match. And Paul says that we may not see these battling forces themselves in a physical way, but what Paul is describing is very real. Real just as God guides and and directs things in this world by His sovereign hand, even though we don't physically see His hand working those things all the time, so these spiritual forces of evil are at work impacting the events of this world and our lives, even though we don't physically see them. And it is those spiritual forces of evil that we're wrestling against day by day as God's people And what Donald Barnhouse, a former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, calls the invisible war that we find ourselves in. Now, if you're a soldier and you arrive on a particular battlefield, most likely the first thing a commander is going to do is brief you on the situation. What has happened so far? What's happening right now? What's the objective? Who's the enemy? And when you get that briefing, then you will be prepared to enter the battle. Let's take a minute to get a briefing, review the origins of this warfare, the objectives in this war, and the main events that have occurred. The war that Paul's describing, this spiritual war, began before the events of Genesis 1, before mankind arrived on the scene. Ezekiel 28 describes how God created an angelic being with great wisdom and beauty The highest of God's created beings, Ezekiel 28 calls him a guardian cherub, the signet of perfection, who walked blamelessly until one day, a day when unrighteousness was found in him and he turned and sinned against God. Isaiah 14 tells us what that sin was. Isaiah tells us that despite the honor and privilege of his nature and position, this being, who we now call Satan, became discontent and declared, I will ascend to heaven. I will make myself like the Most High. He revolted from his position. He declared independence from God and issued a counterclaim to worship and rule. And those continue to be Satan's objectives in this war to be independent from God, and to counter his claims to exclusive worship and rule. Of course, all dominion and power belonged to God, and in the moment that Satan ceased to obey and honor God, God punished him and threw down his attempt. And yet God did not destroy Satan. He certainly could have done that, but he did not do so, nor did he remove him from all sway on this earth. And this is so important for us to understand. Instead, God in His sovereignty chose to allow Satan to continue to oppose God and to continue to seek independence from God. And He allowed him to continue to do so until it will become evident that every effort and every attempt of Satan and mankind to live independent of God is futile and leads only to chaos and to destruction. And it becomes abundantly clear, because every path has been tried to every creature on heaven and on earth, that there is no hope, no final joy, and no satisfaction apart from dependence upon God and submission to His will alone. And that is God's objective in this war. And in order to accomplish that objective, though God did not just allow Satan to continue to exist, He also had a plan from all eternity to create mankind. And though many of these men and women would follow Satan's path and seek satisfaction by going their own way, God would also redeem many others and unite them to Himself so that the universe would be able to see both the futility of a life lived apart from or against God, but also by His grace and mercy alone would see the discovery of true joy and eternal satisfaction that is found in being reconciled to God and submitting to Him in faith and obedience. God announced this plan for the first time publicly in Genesis 3 after the sin of Adam and Eve. And He promised that a champion would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And there were introduced to God's own Son, who in years to come would become man. He would enter Satan's backyard, as Dr. Barnhouse puts it, and rescue his people for himself and set up the final battle when, once the futility of all of Satan and mankind's devices has been established, Christ will finally overthrow Satan and throw him into the pit of hell and claim eternal dominion on earth at the head of his church. And it's important for us to know that this end of the war is certain. Dr. Barnhouse puts it this way, he said from the very moment when Lucifer in his pride cried out, I will ascend, he was doomed to everlasting disappointment. The creature, any creature, who thinks even for a moment that he can get along without God, that he can accomplish anything in his own power, is doomed to the sensation best described as dust in the mouth. We use a phrase like that, right? You bit the dust, you fall face down, trip, and you get a mouthful of dirt. Right at that moment when you thought you were going to score the winning goal, that is the scenario that Satan eternally finds himself in. He sought to ascend to the Most High, only to be cast down and get a mouthful of dust. He thought he'd won a great victory in the Garden of Eden, only to find out he'd played right into God's hand and was condemned to crawl on his belly and eat dust. When the Son of God came, Satan thought he'd pulled off an upset at the cross, only to get a mouthful of dust on Easter morning. And the same will happen on the last day when his final and complete judgment arrives. But that doesn't stop Satan's efforts. So what is Satan up to right now? Well, he is continuing to offer satisfaction or to attempt to offer satisfaction apart from God and to lure mankind away from God as he did with Eve. And he is seeking to oppose God's plans and to oppose God's people. As Revelation 12 puts it, Satan became furious and went off to make war against the rest of those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so as God's people, we expect to face regular temptation to find satisfaction on earth apart from God. And we expect Satan to attempt to sow disappointment with God, to sow conflict amongst God's people and to attack and hatred those who would give testimony to the glory of God's name. Well, what do we expect from God? What is God up to in His current efforts God is ruling in His absolute sovereignty. And in His sovereignty, God is allowing Satan and mankind to pursue their independence from Him. To try every possible way at living apart from Him. Until it is clear that all of these attempts lead in the end only to ruin. And God is also in His sovereignty demonstrating that He will redeem His people he is calling them to faith in Jesus. He is sustaining them through Satan's attacks as their lives now demonstrate God's great goal that satisfaction is found in Him and in Him alone no matter what else happens to us in this life. So that's the origins of this war, the objectives of this war, and the outcome that we know is certain. But Paul then turns to tell us a bit more about the enemy his son, Sue, in his famous The Art of War, says that victory is only possible if you know your enemy. And so Paul describes our enemy for us in this passage. He says that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. It's true that our hurt and our offenses may come from another person in our community. It's true that our suffering may come from governments or from terrorists, but they are not the enemy themselves any more than a gun is the enemy. It's a tool that the enemy is using. And so flesh and blood may be tools of the enemy, but the enemy himself are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now plenty of ink has been spilt in trying to identify exactly what each of these things are, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. I think it's probably best to see this as a summarizing list of all of the Demonic forces that fight with Satan and not any sort of specific hierarchy or categorization. We know, for instance, that the rulers and authorities, that phrase is used frequently in the New Testament to talk about the the evil forces that are overthrown by Christ that he conquered on the cross. The cosmic powers over this present darkness seem to indicate the demonic powers that would influence this world through false gods, through magic and sorcery, through other cultural elements. And Paul says that these forces operate in the heavenly places. And when he says that they operate in the heavenly places, he does not mean that they operate on heaven rather than on earth. He means that they operate in the spiritual realm much like God says that He blesses us with every blessing in the heavenly places. It doesn't mean that we only get blessings in heaven. It means that it's blessings in the spiritual realm as we are part of His people. And so this battle is taking place in the heavenly realm at the level of our souls with the thoughts and motivations and desires at play with eternal consequences. This battle is not merely taking place on the physical level. But Paul specifically says in verse 11 that God's people are up against the devil and his schemes. It's a great word to use for the devil's efforts, schemes, strategies. And we know that he has many ways of seeking to attack us and and, and lure us into sin. Sometimes Satan seeks to distract us with all the details of our lives and the people involved so that we become so focused on them that we forget that there is an enemy of our souls at work in the spiritual realm. Sometimes he succeeds in getting us so consumed with important issues. Maybe they're political issues. Maybe it's serving others. Maybe they're even theological debates at times that we lose sight of the God Himself who makes these issues important. At other times, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, as a proposer of ideas that will be for our good. That's what he did with Eve in the garden, right? He said, oh, this this fruit, it won't make you die. It's going to help you know good and evil. It will make you more like God. He twisted something and made it look good. And so Satan today uses so many things, maybe even taking corners of the truth and suggests things that will be helpful for coping with our situation or our current feelings or helping our life go much better. But each of the things he proposes subtly pulls us away from dependence upon God and upon His Word. At other times, Satan is more interested in directing our attention to the pleasures of this world. We may know something is wrong, but it looks so desirable and attractive. It seems to offer such happiness and satisfaction or to leave us so alone or empty without it that we plunge ahead anyway. And he feeds us impressive mental gymnastics to justify our efforts. At other times, Satan tempts us with resentment and despair. He would lead us to believe that we are failures, that there's no hope in the darkness around us, that we are constantly victims of other people's insensitivities or rejections, that there is nothing we can do about who we are and our problems. And if God had a shred of love or compassion, he would have curbed our fate before this. And so he leads us or tempts us to resentment and despair. At other times, Satan gives up these temptations and simply attacks God's people. He may attack God's people in an effort to snuff out a faithful witness to God's satisfying salvation. He may attack in an effort to cause doubt about God's goodness or care. Or he may attack simply out of his hatred for God and for his people. But Scripture tells us that all of these are part of Satan's schemes. And he not only knows how to attack us, but he also knows when to attack us. He may attack us in times of suffering when God's love and care seem non-existent. He may attack us when we are anxious and facing things that are unknown and our fears begin to crowd out God's promises and God's presence. He may attack us when we are achieving success and pride and self-reliance and a desire for more earthly success sneak in he may attack us when we are idle or bored or have little productive to do as he did with david who did not go to war with the kings and sat twiddling his thumbs on the rooftop and was tempted to sin with bathsheba he may attempt or he may attack us when we are isolated from other believers and lack their encouragement these are just some of the schemes of the devil as he looks to draw people away from God. And we remember, of course, that Satan and these spiritual forces are, are powerful in their attempts. But these verses that we've read are not discouraging. We don't have the strength to oppose Satan ourselves. That is absolutely true. But Paul reminds us of the hope that we have. And you see it declared so clearly in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You see it again in verse 13. That with God and His armor we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Because the reality is that however much stronger Satan and his forces may be than us, God is exponentially more powerful than them. And we are invited in Christ into the presence and the fellowship of this God of power. The question, of course, is, well, how are we to be strong in the Lord then? We note from Paul's words that this is not something that is just automatically true of us. He does not say, well, you just are strong in the Lord. He gives us this imperative, be strong in the Lord. He calls us to be strengthened in Him. So how do we do that? Well, I think there's both a general way and a specific way. In the general sense, we are to take strength in the Lord by looking to the character of God who is described as the Lord of hosts, the Most High and the Almighty. And we are then to believe the promises of His favor towards us and His presence with us in Christ. I think of how Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and he said, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. By knowing that God's favor is towards us, His promises are for us, His presence is with us in Christ, we can be strengthened in Him. Of course, more specifically, we are to be strengthened by putting on the armor of God. And we're going to look at that more specifically next week. But this command is key for all of us. Our hope, our strength is found in Christ alone who has won the victory on the cross and His resurrection from the grave and now has united us to Himself in all of His strength and in the power that is ours through His promises and His presence with us. That's why Luther wrote, isn't it, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He and Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. When we are in Christ, we have all hope. We stand on rock-solid hope in the midst of this spiritual war. I want to step back then. We've, We've seen the war. We've seen the enemy. We see the hope that we have in Christ. I want to end as we respond by encouraging us that I think this this text gives us an expectation and an encouragement. First, it gives us an expectation. That expectation is this. Because we are in a war, we ought to expect to be in battle. You know, in World War II, the 101st Airborne Division won acclaim for some of the hardest fighting on the European front. An easy company of the 101st Airborne played a particularly prominent role. Easy Company was led by Dick Winters. It was from right here in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Their efforts were chronicled by the series Band of Brothers. And In the series, they, they approached one town. From the distance, it looked like the Germans had retreated. It was quiet. It was silent. It looked abandoned. And so they let their guard down and walked into the town. But they misread the situation. The Germans were hiding in ambush, and Easy Company suffered casualties and was driven back. They weren't expecting that the war was still going on there in that town. In the same way, we must not let our guard down, but must expect battle daily. You know, you often hear that trusting Jesus is the way out of your difficulties and your struggles. That's true in the eternal sense. Jesus is our satisfaction and our hope. But in this life, when we trust Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are joining Him. And putting our faith in Jesus is like enlisting for the army at the beginning of World War II. Putting our faith in Jesus is signing up for spiritual warfare. It's not a way out of struggle and hardship in this life. And so we expect to be in battle if we have put our faith in Christ. I know I have found it so helpful personally to to wake up in the morning and think there will be temptations today. There will be people who offend and hurt, pleasures that attract, anxieties and despairs to sink into. And I must be ready to repel those attacks and stand in the strength of the Lord and obedience and dependence on Him, knowing His promises and His presence with me in Christ. It's when we forget the war's going on that we're most susceptible to attack. And we should expect the same with suffering. After all, nothing would make Satan happier than to use suffering to make us doubt that God's promises are true. To use suffering to make us doubt that God cares for us. Or to doubt that God is actually good. That was Satan's goal with Job, wasn't it? Oh God, he just worships You because he has a lot of great stuff on this earth. Take away his stuff and he'll curse you, God. That was Satan's argument. But even in suffering, God is neither impotent nor cruel. Because remember what God's goal is, what His objective is in this war. To demonstrate that every effort of Satan and mankind is futile and leads only to chaos and destruction when done apart from Him. So that it will be abundantly clear to every creature in heaven and on earth that there is no hope and no satisfaction apart from dependence upon God. If that's the case, it should not surprise us at all that God in His sovereignty would allow His people to be attacked by Satan, to strip away things on this world like He did with Job, like He did with the man born blind, like He did with Stephen, to demonstrate to each of us and to the watching universe God's sustaining power and satisfying presence that are true and are our rock even when everything of this earth is stripped from us. That's what we expect because we are in war. But this text doesn't just give us this expectation, it also gives us an encouragement. We rest in the care of the Lord of hosts who daily dwells with us and strengthens us for the battle. William Garnall was a Puritan author who wrote 1,200 pages on the Christian's armor and strength in spiritual warfare. I didn't read all 1,200 pages this week. I commend them to you as I will commend them to myself. But Garnall emphasizes that Christians may be strong or weaker They may be more confident or more given to anxiety or despair. But either way, if they are looking to Christ in faith dependent upon His strength, then each believer is able to stand firm. As Gernal puts it, the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel. As His name is, so is His nature. A God keeping covenant forever. His promises stand as the mountains about Jerusalem never to be moved. So the weak... Christian, as well as the strong Christian, is within this line of communication. Were saints to fight it out in the open field by their own strength, then the strong may be more likely to stand than the weak. But both, castled in His covenant, are alike safe. And that is true for us. This is the God who promised that He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, though it may feel like it at some times. This is the God who promised to be with you even in the valley of the shadow of death. This is the God who made mountains rise and fall and planets form or disintegrate with a mere word. And in His power, we are utterly safe to be preserved to the end. So in the end, Paul summons once again to each of us is to turn to Christ. You know, you've, you've probably seen one of the old army recruitment posters. Uncle Sam pointing at you. I want you for the U.S. Army. Well, God has extended to each one of us an offer of the Gospel this morning. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and deserve punishment. But God so loved the world that He has sent His one and only Son that whoever will believe in Him and put his trust in him alone, will not perish, but have everlasting life. See, we are living in a fallen world that is slowly but surely, through one effort after another, proving the futility and the destruction of every attempt to live life and find satisfaction outside of dependence on God and submission to his will. We are facing an enemy that is trying to discredit God's goodness, to lure God's people from Him, and to attack God's people. But if we enter that fray in our firm faith in Jesus Christ, we do so with a guaranteed hope. If we will come to Christ, we find a Savior who is ready to forgive, ready to make us His and preserve us to the end. When we will dwell with Him, satisfied in His love and marveling at His glory for an eternity to come. In this war, may we know the hope that does not disappoint. May we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, that having done all, we might stand firm. Let's pray. God, You have told us in this passage of Scripture that we are in a war. It is a hand-to-hand wrestling combat with the forces of evil. You've told us about the enemy who schemes to undermine our confidence and our satisfaction in God and His goodness and to lure us away from Him. Father, You have promised Christ and You have called us to be strong in Him and in the strength of His might. And so I pray this morning that each one here would be looking not to any philosophy or any hope in this life for satisfaction, but might look to Christ alone. And I pray that we might look to His promises and His presence with us for our strength, that we might stand and might be one of the fields of battle where it is demonstrated so clearly that you and upon you and in submission to you alone are found any joy and hope and satisfaction. the Westminster Pulpit.